no fluff. Don't worry about your dick. That's going to come later. No lies. I just masturbated. Just real women. Cock rings. Cock rings. Talking real sex. I am so bruised on my girl bits. Sex gets real. Sex gets so real. So real up in here. With Dawn. What's the most sensitive part of your cock? And Dylan. Let's talk about the elusive clip. Now get ready to get real. Eating pussy. There you have it. Hey, it's Dawn. I just wanted to remind everybody real quickly before we get to our episode to check out my From Curious to Kinky workshop that's in the D.C. area, July 31st. For more information, go to sexgetsreal.com and click on events. Can't wait to see you there. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening today. We have an exciting guest for you on the podcast. Dylan and I want to welcome Kate Scalisi. She is a sex educator and writer. She helps others to find freedom and pleasure. And what we're going to be talking to her about today is sex and chronic illness and chronic disease, which I think is going to be really interesting. But Kate has lots of other things that she does. So I want to welcome you, Kate. How are you? I'm well. Thanks so much for having me here tonight. We're happy to have you. So why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners a little bit about what you do and kind of how you got started. Absolutely. So I work, uh, the title I've given myself is sex educator, writer, and consultant because I do a lot of different projects. I do workshops and lectures both at, you know, sex shops, but then also colleges, universities, nonprofits, and I'm starting to break into the healthcare field as well. And then I write for a variety of places, and again, this full range of your everyday sex tips, online magazines and websites, along with my own, to doing newsletters for nonprofits and hospitals and conferences. And I do a little bit of everything, um, and I like to say my major focus is on passionate monogamy, um, sex and chronic disease, which I'm so excited to be talking about tonight, and then also helping to train healthcare providers to just be more sex positive because it's a huge area that they're missing. I totally agree. I know I personally run into like my own OBGYNs and my own doctors where I know more about my body and sex (laughs) and sex health than they do and they're uncomfortable having those discussions with me. Yeah, you know, it's really common and there's a report that came out about a year ago now looking at how much training healthcare providers get on sexual health. Even, even our OB-GYNs, our urologists, and it's, it's really quite minimal. And I, I used to be really resentful about it, actually, but when I got into working in clinics and when I started to really delve into the underlying reason why, I, I can't even blame the healthcare providers because the information is just not being given to them. And the healthcare system, I, mean, I don't want to get into soapbox, but the healthcare system is just set up in a way that doesn't really empower them to go out and get that information about something that is still sadly taboo. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it because it hits on the, the emotional thing, mm-hmm. yeah. and doctors are more on the scientific, clinical, medical side. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. And I know one of the common reasons, too, is everyone kind of thinks it's someone else's job. So when I was working with cancer patients, the oncologists were like, oh, well, the OB-GYN or the urologist will take care of that. And then the OB-GYN or urologist will be like, well, it's not a sex therapist job. And then especially, you know, you insert therapy and we still also have a huge taboo against mental health. So a lot of times the patients aren't even getting to that person who might be the best person to help them out. Yeah. That's really cool work. Yeah. So I... I'm really interested to talk to you about sex and chronic illness because I'll admit I have, I definitely have kind of a bias about that topic when I think about it. You know, the first thing that comes to mind when I think somebody is battling with cancer or they have some other kind of chronic illness, to me, the only thing I really think about is the fact that this person now has this illness and it's kind of like all the other stuff that was them falls away a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, and it never even occurred to me what it must be like to have to kind of rethink sex and intimacy and even like the way that you feel about your body when you get really mm-hmm. sick. And mm-hmm. I know, you know, just on on my end, I have a friend who just recently found out that her 
longtime boyfriend uh, is chronically ill, and so she's kind of having this struggle with that. So I guess the first question I have for you is, you know, if you find out somebody in your life has some kind of chronic condition or chronic disease, what would be your, your kind of number one tip when it comes to like sex and intimacy? Be patient and open. I'm really glad you brought up that it's not something you thought about because it's not something I thought about until I started working with patients. And it's not always something they think about right from the start either. And depending on the disease, your first focus is survival and getting through treatment. But for some patients, they do want to resume sexual activity. They have an easy run of whatever treatment they're doing, or there might not even be treatment depending on, you know, what the disease is. So for partners, you know, it's about being patient and open because you don't know how the person who got the diagnosis is going to feel. They may totally withdraw and not want to even think about sex, or they may swing the total opposite way and want to use sex as an escape. So it's this huge range, and there's no, you know, I wish there was a measure that we could use to say, how are you going to react sexually to this news? Um, But there isn't. And it's, you know, ultimately, you know, it goes back to communication and trying to understand to the best of your ability what your partner is going through, how they're feeling, and doing what you can to be there for them and be intimate with them, regardless of if you're having, you know, intercourse, which is how most people talk about sex. It's interesting. I just, I can't tell you a whole lot about what I do because I'm kind of incognito here, but I just came from a week-long seminar and... It was on leadership. Mm-hmm. One of the classes, a few hours we talked about cancer and the chances of the people who work in my field, one in three of us will develop cancer, will be diagnosed yeah. with cancer, and 35% of us will die. So it was kind of moving, and it, I, don't, you know, I didn't even put two and two together that we were going to be speaking with you today, mm-hmm. and we just kind of sat there through the that particular class and talked about, you know, how we take care of the person who has cancer, but of course nothing came up uh, about the sexual part of it. Mm-hmm. And now it's something else for me to think about on top of what I'm going to take back to add that to the discussion as well, and as well as the medical aspect, the mm-hmm. morale aspect, and now the sexual aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So definitely gives me some something to, to add to what I take away from this past week. You know, something else that kind of occurred to me while you were talking, Kate, was I feel like if someone that I cared about all of a sudden got diagnosed with something and we were having to kind of face this big, scary monster, mm-hmm. I would be intimidated about potentially hurting somebody or injuring somebody physically or touching them in a way that used to work and now doesn't. And I feel like I would be walking on eggshells. And, you know, I think I'm a pretty good communicator when it comes to relationships, but even that is kind of daunting. Do you run into that when you're working with people? Definitely. So I want to touch really quickly on something Dylan mentioned. And I think I'm so happy that this timing worked out for you. (laughs) And I think too, sometimes it's just a check-in because again, not every patient is going to care. And I definitely, um, to give a little bit of background, I was doing a psychosocial survey, so a quality of life survey with patients, and they had one question about sex. And some patients were like, I'm fine, I don't care, I'm not happy, like, it's not important. And some patients, as soon as I asked them, and I opened that door and gave them that permission, saying, I'm someone you can talk to, I got their entire sexual history. <laughs> uh, For me, you know, the focus is we need to just be having these conversations and asking the question. And I know there are so many competing demands, but just by saying, hey, how's your sex life? Or are you having any problems with intimacy? It really lets, it kind of puts the power to them so that if there is an issue, they can bring it up because it's rare when a provider does it. Yeah, I totally agree. I've, I don't think I've ever been asked about sex Mm. by doctors unless I'm like, at the gynecologist and we're actually talking about birth control or something like that. That's probably the only time I bring it up too with anyone yeah. would be yeah. the yeah. 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 And I know you said you can tell us a lot about what you did, but just, just a little food to that. <laughs> <laughs> so what is kind of the, what's the most,
most, I think you kind of just answered this question actually, but you know, when you're working with somebody that's just gotten a diagnosis or is kind of working through their treatment, you just said kind of putting on the table that we can have these sexual conversations is a, is a really good way to kind of open that door. But what's something else that you would want to, you know, tell somebody or a tip you would give to somebody if they've just gotten some kind of scary diagnosis or they're, they're working through something like that? Be really gentle with yourself. More than anything is to find as much compassion as possible for yourself and your body and what you're going through and realize that it's okay to want sex and it's also okay to not want sex because, you know, after you get a diagnosis, it's a hectic, confusing, really life-changing time and regardless of what's coming, it's going to be a wild ride and not in the best possible way that we think of wild rides. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just to really be gentle with yourself, understand that you might lash out at a partner, you might hurt a partner's feelings because you don't want sex and you, you haven't gotten to the point to communicate that yet. But yeah, just really, really be gentle and recognize that your body is fighting a hard battle for you. And it's, it's something to be proud of, ultimately. I think that's going to be the difficult part, even for the partner who is the support piece. So somebody's diagnosed with cancer or an illness, debilitating, however it affects them. The first thing I think the partner is going to want to do is be very gentle. And the last thing I think they have on their mind is having sex with the person who just got diagnosed with something because they just want to we're going to figure out what it takes for you to survive as opposed to the sex would be the last thing on their mind and then even then they would worry and i could tell you right now if that if it were me who were diagnosed my wife would be like no we could that you have to be careful we don't want to exhaust you we don't want to hurt mm-hmm. you we don't want to break mm-hmm. anything and and that would i think that is a diff- difficult conversation yeah to, no, I, I still want to have sex or, yeah, and, and that's a whole nother battle or a discussion. I think that would have to be broached. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, survival is of course, you know, in this conversation, obviously survival is number one. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I have family members who are cancer survivors and I've talked about this and they've reflected back like, you know, when you first get the diagnosis, all you care is surviving. What's the next step? How do I beat this thing? But as time goes on, you start to get, you start to create a sense of normalcy. Right, right. And even though normal is going to have to be redefined because you've been through this life-changing experience, you want to start returning to some of those rituals, including sex, that you've had beforehand. So sex, exercise, eating on a regular basis, depending again on you know what diagnosis and what treatment you're having. And so it's making sure that even if we're not like on the first visit, be like, okay, let's talk about your sex life, checking in at later visits because eventually there's going to want to be that return. And it is, it's, it's a monster of a conversation to have. And if you're not, even if you're talking about sex regularly, it's a hard conversation to have, but it, it really comes down to that exchange of, you know, being comfortable and finding alternate ways to be intimate if one or both partners isn't comfortable with penetrative sex or how, whatever this per, the couple's sex life looks like to begin with. Um, if they're not comfortable with that, finding other ways to still foster that connection so they don't lose that. Sure. And that's, you know, also going into sex as an expanded definition and not just penetration and so on and so forth. Yeah. And working through that as well as a couple, which I do think is a journey that people who have chronic disease and disability understand much more so than the, uh, you know, the general population because they start to see like, oh, you know, that kind of gets me off even though there's nothing near my vagina or my penis. Mm -hmm. Do you work mostly with women or men or is it kind of a split? I primarily work with women. Um, I'm generally more comfortable working with women. Um, And it's also, even within my writing, my writing style is much naturally more geared towards women. That being said, I do have male clients, I do have heterosexual couples, but definitely the bulk of my clientele is female. So I know you just wrote an article recently for the online sexuality site Simply Sexy, Mm -hmm. and it was about cancer and sex. And one of the things that was in your article, you were talking about a lot of the sexual issues and dysfunctions that 
you might have to face if you're, you know, kind of working through this this particular phase of your life. And I know, you know, it could be reduced sensation from, you know, nerve damage or radiation. It could be a reduced libido. It could be, you know, problems kind of lubricating yourself when you used to be able to do that really easily. Can you mm -hmm. kind of talk through some of the more common issues that people have and just like a couple of quick tips for how to kind of navigate that? Definitely. So I do want to also preface with it's very diagnosis and treatment dependent. Okay, that makes sense. Of course. <laughs> but that being said, effects, side effects that impact your sex life from a cancer diagnosis tend to fall into two categories. The first would be direct sexual side effects. So these would be a lot of the ones you just mentioned. So loss of sexual desire, pain with intercourse, trouble reaching orgasm, trouble getting wet, um, not really being able to get aroused. And then the other half are these kind of indirect things that ultimately affect your sex life, even though they're not affecting your sexual organs or any of the sexual nerves throughout the body. So those would be things like fatigue, number one, probably the biggest one, swelling in the extremities, bodily pain, and then physical changes. So um, John, you mentioned at the very beginning about you know the changes in the physical body and how that can impact if you lose a body part, a breast, a testicle, something else, if you gain a lot of weight, lose a lot of weight, it impacts your body image, you have to rediscover this new vulnerability with your body and with your partner and getting naked in a body that you might not feel like is yours. It's, I mean, there's a whole huge scheme of yeah. things. Generally speaking, for the really sexual ones, or the ones that are very sex-specific, if it's something like not getting wet, it's a fairly easy fix, you get a good loop. If it's something like vaginal atrophy from radiation, that requires a little bit more um, intense treatment, potentially with dilators, potentially not being able to have penetrative sex ever again, or changing kind of what that, what that penetration looks like. Wow. So it, it really just depends, again, on kind of the extent of the treatment and what kind of cancer you've had, where the treatment was. With the physical changes, one of my best tips that I work with clients, regardless of their disease status and their disability status, is to spend time naked. And it's really freaking scary <laughs> yeah. to spend time naked and to look at yourself in the mirror and try to silence those negative thoughts. But it's something that I've used over and over again, and my mentors have encouraged over and over again, spend time naked, look in the mirror at your body, and just fight against those negative thoughts with positive thoughts, and even if it feels fake. And I know it sounds so hooey, and I feel so like, ooh, you know, <laughs> even saying it, but it has been one of the most consistently useful tools for both myself personally with body image issues and with clients across the board is learning to say, okay, this is the body I'm in right now. It's not perfect, but it gets, it does what it needs to do. And I'm thankful for that. And it's beautiful because of that. I think that, you know, just beyond kind of the illness discussion and just when it comes to body image issues, mm -hmm. you know, I've sent out a couple of surveys to some, some women's groups to get, questions and things like that for us to consider for the podcast. And the two things that we hear the most from women are two things that you just said. And one of them is kind of struggling with body image is issues, either because they've had kids or they've just gotten older or they just have never really felt sexy in their own skin. And I love this idea of just kind of sitting with yourself naked. That sounds like such a scary thing. It's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, what a wonderful way to just to just kind of give yourself permission. Cause you know, I'll speak from personal experience. You know, I'm a plus size woman and it took me, it took me being with a number of lovers before I started to really believe that these, yeah, these guys were finding me sexy in my super flawed body. And I, you know, in the beginning I noticed that I was rushing to get mm -hmm. to the point where they couldn't see me, you know, like let's yeah. hurry up and take our clothes off and then you get on top of me. Cause then you can't see me, mm -hmm. you know, and kind of, kind of 
becoming comfortable with my body has been really liberating, but it's been, you know, there have definitely been points where it's been scary or, or hard or overwhelming and those negative thoughts come up. So I just love that practice that you just said of just like, I'm just going to sit with myself naked. I think I should sit with myself naked right now. I think you should. <laughs> Go for it. Take your clothes off. <laughs> I will sit with you naked. I am struggling. <laughs> I'm struggling with that right now. It's, you know, it's a tough thing, and I actually, my newsletter, which is, a, you know, in the process of all being translated onto my website as blog content, one of my most popular posts slash emails is still this random one I wrote called Notes on Body Image, aka You're Beautiful, and I was feeling less than pretty one week, and was like, I'm going to channel this. I'm going to take this and channel it and put it into a newsletter, and I'm probably going to lose subscribers, but I don't care, because it's you know it's going to affect someone's life yeah I have to this day it is one of the you know when we're looking at stats one of the most read things I've ever written and I got so much feedback from people like oh my god I needed to hear this today thank you and I I think to be honest the tip about looking at yourself in the mirror naked this is going to be really embarrassing Um, I'm pretty sure it came from Seventeen magazine when I was like 13 (laughs) years old That's awesome. Um, one of the only uh, good things about Seventeen, I guess, and I, it's been something I've literally been doing since I was a young teenager, and it's something that I really credit with the fact that, like, yeah, I still have bad body image days. We all do. Even someone who has the quote-unquote perfect body probably looks in the mirror some days and is just like, oh, or looks in their closet. It, Okay, that was motorcycle. <laughs> New York City. Or looks in the, their closet and hates their clothes. But I really credit the practice of helping me through weight gains and losses and several injuries where I couldn't exercise and whatnot um, stay really body positive. That's really cool. It's true. All different sizes have that issue with yeah. body. Yeah, the other yeah. thing that you brought up was fatigue. So many people. Fatigue. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, just life. It just gets in the way. And sex is really kind of the thing you can cut out, mm-hmm. you know, without impacting everybody's well-being. You know, you can cut sex out, but you can't cut doing the dishes out, you know, or getting food on the table and... I know so many women just feel overwhelmed and so stressed that when they do actually have sex, they don't enjoy it because they can't, like, unplug and get out of their head. And, you know, at the same time, I know a couple of the lovers that I've had in the past, you know, have been married men. And one of the things that they've said to me is they feel like their wives don't want them anymore Mm -hmm. because they're not having any kind of sex or any kind of sex discussion. So when they talk about it, they get really defensive. And I think it's probably because the women are feeling fatigued and exhausted and overwhelmed already. And sex is just like kind of one more thing, you know, Mm -hmm. they don't know how to deal with. So what's kind of your tip for dealing with that? We've talked about it. Dylan and I have talked about that a little bit on the podcast, but we'd love to hear what you have to say. So two things I want to address here. I'll Answer the question directly and then take a little tangent. So my number one tip, I really like drawing from my advocacy trainings for sexual assault survivors, especially for those in-the-moment moments. They're in-the-moment moments, yeah. <laughs> those times during sex when you're getting into the groove and you're like, mm-mm-mm, the sexy time, this is great. And then you're like, oh, shit, I forgot to do the laundry and I hope my sister's not mad at me. And oh, crap, this, that, and the other thing. Yeah, that and happens. Yeah. I, you know, we've all had those moments, and I would say that's probably regardless of gender, but probably a little bit more uh, for the females. <laughs> um, <laughs> but for that, I love do advising on grounding exercises, and these are great no matter how stressed you are um, or what the situation is, sex or otherwise. So the idea is that you get really laser-focused on one of your senses, and you choose five things that you see, hear, taste, or smell, or I missed something. See, hear, taste, smell. Touch. Touch. Thank you, (laughs) Gil. There you go. But, you know, the most important one. And sometimes you do just one of those things, and you're like, okay, I'm going to close my eyes and identify the five things I hear. Sometimes you need to do all five senses (laughs) before you really get you know, it back into the moment. And sometimes it just doesn't work and you have to look at your partner and say, you know, hey, I just, like, I don't even know what just happened. Like, I'm really stressed right now. Can we try to start over? Can we try a back massage and see where that leads? 
and you kind of renegotiate. So grounding plus renegotiation is the direct answer. And then the other thing you mentioned is how sex is the first thing to go. And I would actually argue that sex going means that self-care has already gone out the window. Oh. Not to, you know, poke that up. I feel like usually self-care is number one. And then as we start snapping at people because we're stressed and overwhelmed and then we're like, I don't have sex because I'm overwhelmed and blah, 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 and you're not taking care of yourself first so that you can give to others as well. Because sex is very much giving and receiving, and if you're not in a place where you can do that, it can be really hard to get grounded and make sex a priority. That's a no. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I like, see that. Now I'm just sitting here thinking about that because I totally agree with that. Yeah, because if you're like, your mind is not on sex, you're like, I don't give a fuck about anything right now, really. Yeah. Like I'm fat. I've eaten a ton of <laughs> shit. And exactly. Like totally you might not have brushed your teeth that day. Yeah. <laughs> your, your old yoga pants that are for three days. Yeah. yeah. You don't care about what you look like and work mm-hmm. is coming down on your ass and you're like, <laughs> I need to binge watch something on Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> I can totally see that. Yeah. Your self-care has already gone. Yeah, that's really cool. Good that's, to know. Yeah, I like that. I'm taking notes. Yeah, I am too. We're taking notes. Okay. <laughs> okay, so Dylan and I are fans of lube. Woo! Lube! Yes! <laughs> and, um, you know, years ago I taught sex education classes to women, and one of the things that I was surprised me was how many women didn't incorporate lube as part of their sex practices. Mm-hmm. It was almost like I don't know why. I think some of them felt ashamed about needing it, and some of them just kind of nobody ever told them that they needed it, so they didn't even really think about it. But I know in your article specifically, you were talking about getting a high-quality lube when you're going through, like, illness or treatment. But beyond that, just for, like, badass sex, yeah, we like the lube here. A friggin' man. Love me some lube. I think I could write a million articles on lube and then write a million more. <laughs> I, I totally agree. I've had that same experience. And I really think it stems from this idea that arousal equals wet vagina all the time. Like, if your pussy's wet, it means you're aroused. If your pussy's not wet, you're not aroused. And... You know, I have a science background. I'm a total science geek, so I like want to get. I want to go all sciencey and be like, but you don't understand how this works in the bad way. Yeah. Um, but there's just so many things that can affect someone's ability to produce lube, and you know, it could be something as simple as you had an extra glass of wine last night and now you're dehydrated. Yeah. It like simple day to day fluctuations, and of course, it could definitely be something more like chronic stress some side effect of treatment, medication that you're on. There's just there's just this, like, huge, huge list of things that affect you. So, you know, number one, obviously wetness doesn't always equal arousal. You could be totally turned on and, like, just struggling to yeah. produce lube. No big deal. And, you know, I have some clients in their 20s who are like, I need to use lube every single time because I just don't get wet. And I have some clients in their 50s and 60s who are like, Girl, I've never used lube in my life, and it just, it flows. And I'm like, for you. Yeah. You are lucky. If you're having anal sex, you still need it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I'll, I'll admit, um, I used to not have any problems pre-baby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. After baby, I've always had huh. to use lube. It just didn't yeah. work. I mean, sure, I get way horny. I get mm-hmm. way stimulated in my mind, other ways, whatever. But I'm always going to need to have lube yeah. because it just doesn't. It might get like, you know, all hot and moist inside, but mm-hmm. it just doesn't lubricate on the outside like it yeah. used to back in my younger days. Huh. I mean, I'm 46 yes. and the child was at 25, but still, mm-hmm. even now, I was hoping it would come back, but it doesn't. And it doesn't mean, and that used to be something that was in my mind where I would think the person I was having sex with didn't think I was aroused or that they weren't turning me on because mm-hmm. my pussy didn't get wet. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I don't want you to think I'm not into it because mm-hmm. I'm into it. It's just not. And then I've been with partners who like, you just blow in their ear and they've got to go change their panties. <laughs> that shit is like, you know what I mean? Yep. And it's like all the time. I was like, 
I'm like so envious. Where does that come from? Because you need to bottle that shit. That shit is like some good shit. I'm like, oh, we don't need lube. Yeah, you're right. We don't. I'm very envious, but yeah. And, you know, and the, that's what the GYN told me, that it was probably due to having the baby. I don't know. Could be, or maybe I'm just like super overstressed all the time. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it, it can be, again, so many things. And I still think every single person should have a bottle of lube in, you know, what I call their fashion pantry anyways, yeah. oh, because yeah. you never know when you're going to need it. And yeah. I bet there may even still be a time when those partners that you mentioned might have needed it once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or again, for any sort of anal stimulation. (laughs) But um, yeah, having a good lube and especially, you know, I think that uh, if you get a disease diagnosis, as soon as you have a second to think and you go to the store to buy all the things you need, you should buy some lube too because you might need it. You never know. And I'm, you know, there's a million other ways to use lube. (laughs) I forget where the video was. It was like ways to use silicone lube for non-sexual purposes. So it's just, it's a good household thing to have. Yeah, it was like opening (laughs) jars and making the door not squeak anymore. (laughs) And yeah, it was funny. funny. Lube for the win all the way. Exactly. Right. What's your favorite lube, Dylan? Oh, mine? I use Astro Glide. Both of you like that? Yeah. You and your wife? Yeah, because you know what, if it, if it, if we introduce something and it burns and then, you know, right away that goes out the window. So, mm-hmm. um, and we haven't had any issues with just your plain old CVS Astro Glide. We've tried the wow. paraben free one because we're trying to be all, you know, crunchy and healthy and, but that didn't work. It dried out too fast. And so mm-hmm. we've just pretty much stuck with the right. classic Astro Glide. Yeah. I'm loving my Uber yeah. Lube right now. Yeah. I saw that. <laughs> yeah. So I'm uh, I'm always trying new things, and we try to introduce it, but for one reason or another, we've always gone back, I and mean, we keep that as the standby. And then, like, mm-hmm. so I'm gonna try Uber Lube now because you're like raving about it. Oh, I but... I got I have a sample pack if you want. Oh it. yes, I will. Okay. I'll sample it. I'll give that to you for sure. Do you have a, a preference, Kate? Yeah, so I, um, and this kind of goes against the body safe as well, I I actually am still addicted to the Passion Party Slick Stick because I've yet to find something that lasts quite as long as it, and I continue to try. I actually tested some new lubes for Wet Lube uh, or for Wet Brand. I continue to try, but it has parabens in it, and I feel so hypocritical because it's literally the only thing in my apartment that has parabens. Like, yeah. only yeah. product in my entire yeah. apartment. Yeah. But um, we do have a new one called Lux, which has aloe, and it's a cream lube, and I have it. I'm waiting for it to come in, so I'm really hoping it's just as long-lasting and I can just ditch the parabens once and for all. But I definitely, for people with cancer... I always say, like, avoid parabens, even if there's the slightest chance. The handful of studies that are out there, they're not super high quality, but they do, they have found in every type of tumor that they've sampled, they have found parabens present. So I figure better safe than sorry, ditch it, and if you have to reapply more frequently, it's better than cancer. I guess we better hurry up and just find something that doesn't Yeah, have there's a whole bunch of new ones. When I was yeah. at Sheba... That's to scare you, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, I mean, that could be a fun... fun. That's a fun thing to have to test. Which that is a fun thing to test. Yeah, by Passion Parties. That's what Switch she uses. Uber. Yeah, they had it at Shebop. They had, like, six or seven different kinds that were all paraben-free. I didn't get samples for all of them because they didn't offer it, but there was mm. a lot out there yeah. now. Oh, yeah. And I think samples, I'm glad you mentioned samples. So many shops offer samples now, which makes it so much easier rather than committing, um, you know, good, when people see the price of good lube, I think it's the one thing that shocks them more than, like, even high quality sex toys. They're like, you want me to spend $20 for lube? I'll pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. My Uber lube was 30 bucks. It's expensive. I mean, but it's worth it because your sex life is worth, you know. Definitely. I'm like phoning over here. I'm like, oh, yes, it is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> good I mean, because if it feels good, then your partner's going to want to keep doing it. So exactly. You it's know a good investment. Some shit that gets all and dried I'll out. And I'll also say, like, the little bottle of Uber Lube that I bought that costs, like, almost 30 bucks, yeah. it's seriously, like, one drop or two mm-hmm. yeah. is enough to just, Whoa. like, coat the whole pussy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Or, like, yeah. I'll put, like, one drop on the end of my glass dildo for anal, yeah. and it's, like, that's that's some good stuff. Yeah. What's the rule again that you're not supposed to... You're not supposed to use silicone lube on silicone toys. Right. Okay. But you can use them with condoms and with glass okay. and that other stuff. Yeah. Just skin. Right. Yeah. Awesome. So I need to avoid... None of the... Are any of the ones we're talking about have are silicone lubes? Uber is silicone. Oh, so I can't use that. Well, if you put a condom on your, to- on your, on your dick. Oh, 
Okay. Because I put I always put condoms on my toys. It makes it easier to clean up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, then you just... And it's actually safer sex. They, they did a small study out here. I see I geek out. Do you see this? <laughs> Even with the silicone dildos? Showing um, that... It was very, very small study, like 12 people, showing that um, HPV, even after cleansing silicone toys, still stays on. Like, you can still find it on the toy for a while. So if you're using the toys with multiple partners, it's, it's going to stay sex practice, too. Yeah. If it's one partner, it's just one. It's me and me and the wife there. We've there been you go. nine years. We've been pretty good. So. Awesome. <laughs> pretty good. We've been pretty or good. Pretty naughty. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but so. that's good to know because I wouldn't know that. So I mean, she's yeah. not opposed to it. The whole thing was we had switched to the silicone dildo because the other dildos were horrible. Or what was it? She was b- getting a latex. Oh, yeah. Uh, sensitive reaction to it, you know, or like, I should I put this out there? Like, her vulva would just swell up, so. And not in a good way. Not in a good way. So I was like, well, we just, then we were using the, um, the skin, yeah. skin condoms, which we love, because mm-hmm. they're non-latex, uh-huh. and we would just do that. And then to avoid using those, we just went with silicone, and that was like, awesome sauce yeah so we stopped having to use the condoms but you know except for like when we're going into some butt love area yeah and then now that you said the thing about what is it the hpv kind of lingers on the yeah for that 20 study just came out too yeah. yeah and it's very you know again i want to stress it was literally 12 people yeah and they compared the tpe versus silicone silicone still did better the tpe it might have been silicone. Silicone might not have been had HPV on it for the extra, tw- the full 24 hours. It might have been a lesser period. Okay. But they did find you need to kind of let the toy sit. They also didn't sterilize the toy. They just used a commercial toy cleanser. So it really, you know, there's a lot of different factors. How are you cleaning it? How long are you, you know, waiting between uses? How many partners are you working with? Are you using it with? Sadly, with a lot of sex research, they tend to be these smaller studies, and then the media gets them and makes these huge, broad statements about how this is going to kill you, or this is the best thing ever, and the G-spot exists, but no, it doesn't, and so on and so forth. (laughs) (laughs) We just talked about the G-spot in our last episode. Love some G-spot, too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, G-spot's good stuff. But, yeah, we were watching, of course, all the um, YouTube videos, and there's some pretty interesting YouTube videos on the (laughs) G-spot, and yes, I was explaining to... The wife that there, there's uh, the half that says there's no such thing, and then the half that swears by the G spot. So yeah, yeah. My but view yeah. on it is it's not. I think the spot is what really gets people because you think it's like this one specific right. spot. But it's like and this I, long organ. Ex- and I, I'm like, I just call it the G zone because yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's located kind of in a different place than everyone. So it's a general region. Yeah. Yeah. Versus yeah. this one, like, it's, you know, I think when they think spot, they think clitoris where it's, you know, you right. have that tip that you could touch specifically. And that is the one spot even, you know, right. external at least, So, yeah. Woohoo. Body love. Sounds love good. It. Okay. So. Since you do more than just dealing with people who have chronic illness, but you also work in all kinds of different fields within sex education mm-hmm. and awareness, what is your favorite thing to share with people uh, for how to have great sex? Just one? <laughs> okay, your top three. Just lay it on us. Okay. Oh, well, if you insist. <laughs> <laughs> Number one is to have fun. I think that, in, I'm certainly guilty of this, Sometimes sex becomes so much work because they're trying to keep it fun and exciting and you forget that it should really be fun and it's actually really awkward when you think about the physical dynamics and, you know, things are touching and going in other things. (laughs) So have fun, be able to laugh about it. Those really awkward, embarrassing moments that happen when you're having sex make the best stories later on for both you and your partner and you and your friends. Like, there's still there's still a specific time I could think about that, you know, my girlfriends and I laugh about to this day, and it, my partner and I laugh about it to this day, too. Um, <laughs> so, have fun. Um, one of my mentors this year, her whole focus is incorporating amusement into your life. So, incorporate amusement into your sex life. I love um, that. But we're, we're big yeah. fans of that. Yeah, it's great, right? I love it. Um, be kids, play, do silly stuff, get dirty, you know, literally, physically dirty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's one of the things we've talked about a couple of times is like how people sometimes get so bogged down in this idea of like we're doing it wrong, we're not doing it enough, you're not doing it the right way, and they it's like this is supposed to be adult playtime. Exactly. You know, like this is supposed to be fun. So like if something isn't working, how would you deal with it if you were out on the playground? You'd be like, this isn't fun. Let's try something else. Exactly. I love that. Yeah. 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 You know, your bio, your one thing caught me. uh, I'm really interested in your passionate monogamy. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. We're going on into our 10th year together. That's a really long time for lesbians. And to keep it passionate, you know, I think like we vow so hard to not fall into that lesbian bed death. And, you know, there were definitely times in our relationship where it was, uh, wow, we are totally fitting into that stereotype. So mm-hmm. we we were logging it and keeping track of how often it was. And then we said, you know, we should also keep track of how often we play with ourselves when we're not there. And when we do, we always share it with each other. You know, we're like, I judge myself because we like to keep each other informed of that stuff. And it's kind of excites each other and trying to find or keep the passion. Like, obviously we love each other so much. But when it comes to the sex part, I will admit that I'm kind of doggish in that sense, where you can say I'm the typical male role player mm-hmm. in where I will bypass the passion and just want to get right to business. Mm-hmm. She, on the other hand, is completely okay if there was just the passion mm-hmm. without the sex. Yeah. So where. To find that happy medium, she likes the butterflies, and it's a, a constant work in progress to make sure that the butterflies are there to make sure that I get the sex. Does that sound really dicky right Yes, now? it's okay. <laughs> you know what Own I mean? It. We'll forgive no. you. You know, I think this is one of those things that people don't talk about enough, because the more I talk with couples who've been in long-term relationships and have chosen monogamy... The more I realize how like that's just common and everyone's kind of dealing with it and no one's talking about it and it's something everyone goes through. Now that doesn't give you any answers, but I I truly yeah. do believe in normalizing issues first. Yeah. Um, so normalizing step sure. one done. And it, you know it, it it's gonna look different for every couple. How, you know incorporating more fun is a great way to do it. How can you be silly together? Silliness is intimacy. You know. I have some sex educators and mentors in my life who hate the word intimacy because it's used to replace sex so much, and I I agree with that view. But I love it because it's, to me, this huge, broad word that includes sex, but also all those little silly butterfly moments where, you know, like even today I I had a, a medical test earlier today that I've been putting off for four years and freaking out, and I, you know, I told my partner, I need extra support today. The fact that he not only texted me after the, you know, around the time of the test, but also right before the podcast, it was just like, oh, that was really cute. Like, thank you. That was sure. that was really sweet and intimate, and you fed that kind of little bit of passion. It, you know, Danielle Laporte talks about owning your fifty percent, and I love the concept of owning your half. And so, you know, how can you be more mindful of incorporating more passion, and how can your partner be more mindful of meeting your sexual needs? And I can't give you that answer. Sure. I can't give any couple that answer. We could talk all day about sex tips and tricks, and ultimately it comes down to what's going to be best for you. Yeah. Yeah. You said something else that I thought was really interesting, and I feel like one of the things, as I learn more and meet more people and read more, you know, kind of the default for relationships in our society is monogamy. Expectation is you're going to be monogamous, so you don't, usually talk about it because you Mm -hmm. just assume that's what everybody is doing Mm -hmm. and you said when people have chosen monogamy and I love Mm. that I think that's so powerful I I wish more people would Mm. choose to be monogamous or choose to not be monogamous but that there's a choice because you know like I mentioned some of my lovers are married or have been married and I think it's because they never talked about how is our relationship going to look and mm-hmm. what are our needs. And so they went with the default and now it's failing them. Mm-hmm. You know, so I just love that you said people who have chosen monogamy. I think that's so awesome. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I wish more people, I wish we had those conversations like at a younger age as part of sex ed with kids. Right. You know, like 
here's some relationship models. And when you choose one, you know, here's how, how it looks. But you have to choose one. You know, you don't just fall into it and then people are unhappy. Mm. Yeah, and that's definitely, you know, it's a very, I'm thinking of maybe two couples who fall into that, in my life at least, who fall into that category, and uh, honestly, the whole reason I started talking about passionate monogamy was inspired by Catalyst Con this year, and within the sex positive space, which I love and I'm so grateful for, I sometimes feel like monogamy can be demonized because it is the default, and because it, for so long, it has been oppressive to non-monogamous, like ethical non-monogamous. Yep arrangements but I found that I was feeling a lot of like guilt over the fact that I I chose choose monogamy and I realized that I wanted to kind of create a space to talk about monogamy as as another viable option and encourage people to think about it and to have these conversations to say whether that's right for them I am you know it, to me sex positive means being open to anyone's arrangements regardless of your own so I choose monogamy but I'm totally okay for people who don't. Like, I think that's great as long as it's something they've given choice, thought to. I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think any relationship model is the right relationship model for you mm -hmm. as long as you've chosen it. Exactly. You know, so I love that. I mean, I'm so in awe of people who have long-term monogamous relationships where, like, it just really works for them. <laughs> but I imagine it's because they've gone into things so mindfully. Yeah. yeah, you know, whereas I have the same admiration for people who are like fully poly and have oh, like, my gosh, I know. you know, like all of these beautiful, huge relationships and all of the complexities that come with that. But when everybody's choosing, it's really cool. Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah, I just love that you said chosen monogamy. I agree with you. I think monogamy is definitely seen as lesser in a mm -hmm. lot of circles, you know, or seen as, um, less evolved mm -hmm. but yeah I think when 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 you're choosing it that's so empowering mm -hmm. it's really yeah cool. I definitely I came back from Catalyst basically owning my vanilla-ness <laughs> and, awesome. and, and wanting to be kind of again putting my little geeky science hat on being like how can I investigate the world of BDSM kink in a vanilla way uh, from the space where I'm vanilla and like realizing really that's my target audience or people who identify more as vanilla who've chosen monogamy and but they still kind of want to explore what else is out there within kind of just outside their comfort level one of my goals for this year was to get comfortable in discomfort and so you know I, I went to a Japanese rope bondage class with someone I met at Catalyst who I felt really comfortable with and I've been trying you know um, at the Philly Trans Health Conference I went to a session on being a dominatrix and just all these things I never would have done last year because awesome. I didn't recognize my own vanilla-ness and desire to be <laughs> passionate monogamy as an option. <laughs> nice. I think that's really cool. Yeah, it's fun. Really cool. Yeah, it is fun. Yeah, I'm going to a class tomorrow night with a friend of mine on um, violet wands, which is electric, like electricity. I'm not sure it's going to be something that I roll into like my regular, mm -hmm. uh, you know, toolkit but just the fact of being able to go and experience it and meet people mm -hmm. who like it is going to be totally awesome and then we can talk about it on the podcast yeah. <laughs> it's so funny you mentioned that because that test I was avoiding was a nerve test where they shock you with electricity uh. <laughs> and I've been dreading it for so long I was so nervous today so it's hysterical that awesome. <laughs> I'm paying to do that tomorrow for fun <laughs> not be something oh. that would be a little too far in the, the discomfort. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> it makes you feel better. It's through this like vibrator like device that has different tips and you can choose tips that make it like you can control the electricity to the point where you don't feel it at all. Oh, okay. So you know you can like put it on a really low setting and it's almost just like warm. Okay. And then you can go up and then of course you can you can do it like the crazy way and totally like shock yourself, but don't do it. Don't, yeah. Dylan hates don't electric anything. <laughs> so Dylan will not be at the class tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this has been awesome. Do you have any other questions for Kate, Dylan? Someone were to get in touch with, um, I don't know if we were done, but I definitely mm -hmm. wanted information if someone needed to get in touch with you to teach a class or get in touch with a group that might be interested in yeah. having. Definitely. I'm working on it. <laughs> the super secret projects. I am. That's right. 
And one of my big goals is to really be training providers on a regular basis to help them get more, to, first of all, to be aware of what the potential issues are, but also get more comfortable talking about them. Yeah. So at this point, the best way to reach me will be would be to go to my website, which is Passion by Kate. And it's spelled K-A-I-T. I know you're linking it, but just if someone doesn't like to read and they're an auditory learner. So it's passionbyKAIT.com. That's also my email. So it's passionbykate at gmail.com. So if anyone has questions or inquiries, the best way to reach me would be to either do the contact form on the website or email me directly and talk about setting things up. Sounds awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. Thank you so much for talking to us today. I know our listeners are going to be really interested in everything you had to say, and we'll definitely put your information up on the website so that people can find you. And if anybody you know wants to get in t- contact with you, they can always email us, and then we'll forward that to you. Awesome. Um, yeah. So, any closing thoughts, or are we all set? Will you be at any anywhere? Anyone can come find you in the near future. Will you be at any cons, so to speak? Yes. Actually, let me pull up my sticky note here. Um, well, I can cross you guys off now. <laughs> Let's get real. Who did that? So I am going to be volunteering but not speaking at the Woodhull Sexual Freedom Summit. We so will I will be, be there. Yeah, you will be? Yes, we will be there. Yeah! We'll oh, the one in, in Alexandria? Yes. Yeah. Oh, good. Then we can meet you in person. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so exciting. Very cool. Okay, good. Um, so I will be there, again, kind of networking and volunteering. I'm speaking at Catalyst Con West, which is in September. Um, I'm doing two panels. One is on is on sex, dating, kink, and cancer. Um, so it's all for survivors um, and people who work with them. And then the other panel is about being a more sex-positive public health professional. I'm also going to be at Widener's um, Sex Intimacy and Aging Conference, again, talking about sex and cancer, um, and then a little bit, I don't, you probably don't have college, ha- I don't know, maybe you have some college health professionals listening to this. Um, yeah. I know we have at least never one. Know. We have um, at least one. Come <laughs> on, all right, awesome. So I'm also presenting at the New York State College Health Association Conference in October. It's a lot to say. And with, I will say to you, I am in the process of reaching out to other places within each of those locations to see if I can set up some additional workshops and trainings and whatnot. So I'll hopefully have some additional things in the D.C. Alexandria area, the L.A. area, the Philly area, and Syracuse. Um, but those haven't been finalized yet, so yeah. Very cool. Awesome. Yeah, we will make sure and get your website info up on the podcast. And thank you so much for talking to us today, Kate. Thank you. It was great. I'm so happy we were all able to come together and talk about this. Me too. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. This is Dawn. And this is Dylan. And this is Sex Gets Real.